Hi, I'm Dr. Mills. I'm with Grad Chats at UCA. Today, we're here to discuss the imposter phenomenon, which is a particularly important topic in graduate school. Many people may have heard about the imposter phenomenon in our previous podcast, but today we're going to discuss why it's a common experience in graduate school and how it might be addressed at different levels of graduate school culture. I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. Jessica Herring-Watson. Dr. Herring-Watson is an assistant professor in the Department of Teaching and Learning the UCA College of Education. She earned her bachelor's and master's degrees from UCA before earning her EDD in instruction and curriculum leadership from the University of Memphis. She has extensive experience in instructional design as well as educational leadership, which will be incredibly important for today's discussion. She also has special interests in digital equity, technology-enabled learning, and social constructivist approaches to teaching and learning. In fact, she is one of our premier instructors in the PhD for leadership and equity and inclusion programs over in the College of Education. And I think within that context, I think she's worked with, and Dr. Heron Watson, um, you can elaborate on this, on mm-hmm. especially if anything that I've missed, but you've also dabbled into mindfulness and well-being. Well, that was a very bold introduction. I feel very humbled. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but I am just personally interested in mindfulness and well-being, especially in the work that we do in the academic realm. I think it can be really easy when you work in this world to get really caught up. There's always a million things to do and can be difficult to be present when you're constantly thinking about the next thing that needs to happen. And so as just a personal well-being th- issue, it's something that's very important to me. Um, and that was a great introduction. I don't know that I would add much except that I am a first generation college student. And I think that's, you know, um, relevant to the conversation that we're going to have today and a first generation graduate student in my family as well. Proud UCA alum. Um, and yeah, I'm excited for our conversation. Thank you for asking me to be on the podcast with you. Of course. Um, Now, before I get into uh, the questions that we've prepared today, um, let me follow up on that. Being a first-gen student, both undergrad and grad, do you feel that that puts pressure on you like uh, that you otherwise might not have? Mm, I mean, I do think, I mean, I'm an an oldest child and a first-generation college and graduate student, so I think there's a certain internal pressure to achieve. Um, I don't know if other people feel that way, but I, I think I certainly felt that, um, family influence to be academically successful all throughout my school career. Um, I think it's also relevant to the conversation we're having today about the imposter phenomenon, because when you're the first person in your family, you don't necessarily, you might have a lot of support, social support, but the people in your family who are so excited for you to go on this journey and be the very first may not have the same knowledge of like the hidden curriculum and the organizational structures of higher ed. And so um, that can be something you have to figure out for yourself. Like I didn't know what a registrar's office was when I went to college um, and I had to figure out how to navigate financial aid and, you know, just things like that. So I think having those kind of, I wouldn't, they can be, pretty significant barriers if you don't have 
the persistence to overcome them. Um, and I think that's important to think about, not just at the undergraduate level. We often have that conversation when we talk about first gen students that are freshmen, you know, first years in college. Um, but we aren't always having that conversation about graduate school. And I think that's really important because you're navigating new things for the first time in that space as well. That's right. Well, thank you for that. Yeah. Well, I'm wondering if that, you know, that lack of generational advantage kind of goes into this whole um, idea of the imposter phenomenon. And, you know, I specifically asked you to come to this podcast because <laughs> you have some really uh salient, I would say salient insights on the imposter phenomenon. Um, would you do me a favor? Would you kind of, you know, some of our listeners may not exactly know what imposter phenomenon is. And, you know, we've, we've heard it as imposter syndrome. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm sure they can watch TED Talks and such. But would you give us a quick background on what imposter phenomenon is and, you know, how you would describe it? But also, I'd love it if you kind of add that little piece where you feel like would be really relevant to our grad students. Sure. Um, so a lot of times you'll hear people use the term imposter syndrome um, and that term imposter syndrome is a, an easy way to define it is that it's a persistent inability to believe your success is deserved or has been legitimately achieved as a result of your own efforts or skills. So instead, the story you might tell yourself is that you just got lucky to be accepted into your program of study, or you might feel that at any moment, someone is going to discover that you have no idea what you're, go you're doing, and they're going to call you out on it. Um, so it's this kind of anxiety related to performance. Um, and I think it's important to know that this isn't a new idea. Um, this phenomenon has been studied for decades in various populations. The term imposter syndrome was coined in the 1970s by two researchers, Dr. Rose Clance and Dr. Suzanne Imes. And they were studying this phenomenon in women pursuing PhDs. So that kind of gives you some context about where it started. I actually had a stats professor in grad school that had us run all our stats using the Clance scale. So they developed a survey scale uh, that could be used to measure imposter syndrome. And it's since been used and validated with various different populations. And we hear it in conversations related to higher ed and graduate student education, kind of where it started, but also across industry sectors. So we hear conversation about imposter syndrome um, when we're thinking about like uh, recruitment and promotion in different industry levels, or like a person might feel imposter syndrome when they get uh, promoted to C-suite level or management and they're thinking in their head, you know, I, am I even qualified to do this job? I don't know what I'm doing. Um, so we hear conversations about it in ed leadership and graduate education and business leadership um, conversations. Thank you for that. Now, you, you cited those studies from the 70s and what we've learned in the graduate school that there aren't that many studies, though, regarding this phenomenon and the experiences of grad students, but some studies have shown that the prevalence of the imposter phenomenon is as high as 82% across all professional settings. Um, and after receiving a lot of feedback about the imposter phenomenon from grad students, the grad school conducted its own study. The researchers found that 85.8% of participating students endorsed at least some feelings related to the imposter phenomenon, 
with 24.5% of participants endorsing moderate to extreme levels of imposter syndrome. Why do you think that the imposter phenomenon is so prevalent in grad school? Mm, okay, so this is just my opinion, but I think that's why we asked you. <laughs> <laughs> I think anytime you put yourself in a position to do something new that you have never done before, there is a certain level of anxiety associated with that experience in graduate school. You're being asked to stretch your thinking and engage in really challenging work, often with a group of people that you're just meeting for the first time. So at the start, you've yet to build any kind of community of support, and that can feel very isolating. When we feel isolated, it's very easy to get in our head. That's when our inner critic can get really loud and comparative, especially if we are entering this experience of learning from a previous environment where we felt like we had it all figured out, right? Like um, moving from that big fish in a little pond to a little fish in a big pond space um, can cause all that inner critic language to get really loud or us to think, okay, well, this person next to me really seems like they have it figured out. And why do I not understand or know what it is I am supposed to know? Um, I think another factor here is the myth of perfectionism. And this is actually in Clance's work. Um, perfectionistic tendencies is part of the imposter syndrome. Um, and I know for myself, it, I had to unlearn a lot of perfectionistic tendencies in grad school to develop a healthier relationship with academic work. Um, high standards doesn't have to mean perfect, but I think for many graduate students, that's the expectation they set for themselves. And that can be really stressful and anxiety inducing. Um, and I'm also not putting the full burden of perfectionism on students. I think academic culture perpetuates that myth of perfectionism in a way that can be really stifling and stressful. Um, so faculty have a responsibility too to reframe how we talk about and our academic work um, and what it is to engage in academic work if we wanna support graduate students in overcoming those feelings of not being good enough and embracing progress over perfection. Yeah, so look, you, you're in the College of Education, you've been a teacher your entire career, right? And you are sharing these ideas from your pedagogical background. If if you're a faculty member in another field and you know, not college of education, what kind of advice would you give another faculty member, for example, on how they could help mitigate, you know, these these feelings that that contribute to this imposter phenomenon? Um, well, I think mm, the I would say intentional mentorship is really important in this conversation. The more people feel a sense of belonging and community within their program, the easier it is to be vulnerable, to admit that you don't know what you don't know. And there's so much of that as a graduate student. You are bringing in a wealth of knowledge to your program as a learner. Um, but I really like to remind students, you know, we're here to get it right. We're not here to be right. So it's important that we we have this narrative of learning as a journey or a process and not this final destination. I know that sounds kind of trite, but I think we can model that in the way that we talk about our own academic work. You know, nobody is posting about their rejections on LinkedIn. You're only posting, you know, when you finally get that article published to celebrate. And I think 
if we want to model what it looks like to be um, a person who is in process, right, who's staying curious and innovative and trying new things, it's really important to to center community over competition. I think individualism and that sense of competition really contributes to those feelings of isolation and imposterism. Uh, whereas if we focus on community and learning together and learning as an act of vulnerability, it can create this sense of space of psychological safety where we can all learn more together, right, from one another and alongside one another. So I would say really great mentorship in that regard and also in just helping graduate students learn to navigate the intricacies of graduate school, right? Making those expectations transparent, being really honest about how systems work. Um, I was very fortunate to have really excellent mentorship um, from my supervisor for my um, in my doc program. And that made a huge difference for me because um, I had, I did not know what I did not know when I started my doc program. Um, and she never took any knowledge for granted. That was really important to me. There was never um, a silly question. There was never anything I asked that I should have already known or had to look up. She was just really kind and honest with us. Um, and we also had really intentional onboarding. So I think ha being in a program with a really strong orientation um, is really helpful. So if we're thinking about faculty, um, take a look at how you onboard graduate students. Do they have any kind of orientation to support their entry into the program, to share expectations up front in ways that are really clear and thorough? Um, or is it kind of a guessing game until they do something wrong and then there's some kind of punitive response to that? So I think the more proactive we can be in our mentorship and the structures and um, that we provide, the better it can be for students. Oh, that's really thoughtful. I, I appreciate that. Um, this emphasis on community and proactive um, um, constructivism, you know, actually, for lack of a better term, you know, I mean, because it really is, it, it sounds like for me, in my background, it sounds a lot like scaffolding. Yeah. Uh, yeah, right. Um, so I, I, I really do feel like there's something that we need to do about this because we know that uh, the imposter phenomenon is linked to poor mental health, increased likelihood of burnout. And um, to counteract that, you know, we had this opportunity now to build a community, as you said, mm -hmm. um, but it has to be intentional, right? Right. Yes, absolutely. Uh, yeah. So my, my final question for you though, um, and again, you know, just for our listeners, I just want to point out, we have certain questions that I'm supposed to ask her, but um, I've worked with Dr. Herring Watson to know that I can ad lib anytime I want to, and and she'll she'll respond with ease. I'm so, doing my very best. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, what I'd like to ask you is, like, do you feel that there's any societal I don't know how to put this. Do you feel that the imposter phenomenon is exacerbated by societal influences or is this something that's in our heads? Oh, it's definitely socioculturally informed a hundred percent. I mean, no, I mean, this is my constructivist leanings coming out, but like, well, we no, hear. 
no phenomenon happens in a vacuum, right? And so um, that's actually a great opening to some resources I'm going to share with you in case you do show notes for these episodes. So um, I cannot take full credit for my my feelings about imposter syndrome and how we can combat them. I'm They're actually very informed by other scholars. And so I want to shout them out because I think it's really important um, to share their work. And I hope other people will read this work in the Harvard Business Review and listen to these authors share their work um, in the podcast episode I'm going to share with you. But there are a couple of Harvard Business Review articles that were published a few years ago, and they really helped me to reframe how I think about imposter syndrome because they changed the focus from the individual who is feeling those feelings of not good enough um, to the system or the organizational culture in which the individual is experiencing those feelings. And so the authors of that piece, those couple of pieces are Jody Ann Burry and Ruchika Polshian. They wrote a couple of articles about how we have to reframe this conversation from one of imposter syndrome to one of inclusion and belonging. Um, we read these two articles actually in one of the PhD courses that I teach in the College of Education, and the authors critique Clance and Imes' original research, research and argue that imposter syndrome directs our view toward fixing people at work instead of fixing the places where people work. And I think we can make a, a real easy leap from fixing the graduate students in the graduate school to fixing the conditions under which they are trying to become scholars, right? Um, so it ignores, if we focus on this whole fixing people paradigm and don't think about those systems, we're ignoring the way that some groups of people have historically been excluded from or marginalized within these organizational cultures. And that's just not realistic. You know, that's not, we have to be honest about the historical culture and how we're working to unlearn and change that culture. Um, so I think we have to engage in really deep reflection about where we are and where we want to go in terms of mentorship and bringing new voice into the realm of academia um, through graduate education. And I think there are some actionable steps we can take to engage in that intentional mentorship. And we talked about some of those earlier, um, but I'll just reemphasize that I think there's a lot of hidden curriculum in graduate school. Um, and the more we can make those things transparent and easily accessible, the less people will feel like they don't know what they're doing, right? And so those feelings of anxiety can kind of be reduced. Um, Mentorship can also look like being honest and vulnerable about our own experiences as faculty. Um, we talked about that a little bit, but I do think having that culture that focuses on big wins um, can create a lot of feelings of uns unsureness about our, especially when you're just starting out in developing your own lines of research and inquiry you can, it can feel really intimidating, right? Because you haven't had necessarily any of those wins yet. And you may experience a lot of negative feedback from reviewer two um, before you have that big win, right? And so I think we need to be, be helpful to students in being honest about the things that are challenging for us, um, even however, you know, regardless of how many years into our academic careers we are. Um, and then I think high expectations can look very different um, 
it doesn't have to look like that myth of perfectionism, right? It can be encouraging academic excellence. It can be encouraging persistence and resilience when you do get that critical feedback um, to try and try again, because that's what it takes often um, to get our work out into the world. So I think setting that focus on progress over perfection can be a much more productive organizational mindset. Um, so I will say this in closing my answer to that question. It's not just in your head, right? This is a you, what you're feeling is a real feeling. If you are looking around and thinking someone is going to figure out that I have no idea what I'm doing, like that's a real feeling. And I think it's okay for us to acknowledge that, but I think we have to, there's a yet, there's a both and here, a yes and. Yes, you feel this way. It's a real feeling. And you can advocate for yourself. You can advocate for organizational change if you feel like you need more to, to support you um, in being successful as you move forward in your program. And think about the cohort that you're learning with. How can you build a community together and have that student culture amongst yourselves of progress over perfection. I know I learned um, in my doc program, I was in a cohort of eight um, and we had a group me and that was like our constant encouragement thread, right? Like everyone was always reminding everyone else um, to push forward. We're all in this together. We're going to make progress. It's certainly not going to be perfect. Another one we loved was uh, perfect is the enemy of done. That's another one we we like to use. So I think building those systems of care and support is really important. And also acknowledging that we can make that culture shift as a as an institution as well, that to be more supportive. Thank you so much. I really appreciate again your your emphasis on community and um, but also self-advocacy, right? Mm-hmm. Um, one aspect of of my experience as a researcher is always try to balance that humility with intellectual curiosity you know it's like Mm -hmm. i I know that i don't know everything and i'm trying to explore more but that can lead to this imposter phenomenon it's like gosh these other people wrote about something that i i I should have known that i should have (laughs) known that right but but you're right you know you don't want perfect to be the enemy of good right yeah so for me, whenever you focus on what you can do and what you are doing, you have to acknowledge, I think we all have to acknowledge that that I would wager most normal people feel this at some point, if they have any shred of humility. Yes, yes, right? 100%. Right? Well, and like I heard someone say, I can't remember where I heard this. Maybe on, I've been listening to one of Adam Grant's podcasts late, lately. And so maybe I heard it there. I cannot recall for sure, but it's... It was the, an expert isn't a person that knows all the things. An expert is someone who knows to ask all the questions, right? right? So if we ever stop asking questions, if we ever stop being curious, that's when we'll start to lose our expertise because we're no longer, you know, research is constantly evolving. And so I think that's an, that's another instance of reframing, right? A lot of times we come into graduate school thinking an expert is a person that knows all the things, but experts don't necessarily know all the things. And if they think they do, then they've stopped learning, right? Experts just keep asking those questions to dive deeper um, into the things that they want to know so that they can maintain their expertise. Yeah, thank you. Um, Something else that you said, um, 
uh, maybe think about it, an article I read just last week about the Stanford duck syndrome. I don't know if you've ever heard of that. Oh, no, but, you'll have to tell me about this. Well, the Stanford duck syndrome is, is essentially um, something that Stanford students would kind of call out each other on, right? Um, because um, a lot of the students, you know, it's high pressure at Stanford, right? Ivy mm -hmm. League. And well, essentially, you know, um, top tier school there. And, um, you know, students would walk around kind of like, I've got everything together, you know, kind of, you know, I'm looking cool and, you know, I got this, you know, I mean, oh, you're saying classes are hard. Well, you know, I got this. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm cool, you know, but that would contribute to that imposter phenomenon in other people. It's like, God, mm. I'm stressed out, you know, I mean, you know, this person, they must be super, right? Mm -hmm. Well, they started calling each other out. It's like, I know that you're staying up late at nights studying. I know you're yeah. doing this and this. It's kind of like, like a, when you see a duck glide across the pond. Oh yeah, they're know, just- Yeah, they're, well, they're all smooth. graceful, right? You know, yeah. on, the, on the top, very graceful, very smooth, but under the water, it's just as you were showing me. They're uh, hustling. Your listener, you can't see this, but she's fiercely flapping her little feet. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yes, yeah. And I think that that's part of that, you know, having that facade of I have it all together, that's just one way we can armor up, right? We don't have yeah. to admit what's happening under the surface. But I think if we were, I'm not saying we need to all walk around being, you know, just losing it because we are stressed we need to have a certain level of keeping it together but right. i think we can balance that with some honesty about what feels challenging in our program and how we're persisting through it because those stories of persistence and resilience are really important in helping us actually persist and move forward and not get stuck um, so I think that's, yeah, that's a really great analogy for this conversation, Dr. Mills. And I'll, I'll close by saying this. I know I said a lot of things about organizational culture, but I do think at UCA, at least in my experience of working with other faculty, we do a lot. We do try to provide our candidates with mentorship and support and a lot of the things that we talked about today. And um, so I just want to shout out at least the faculty I have the pleasure of working with um, in my work with graduate students that we're, we're trying. And if you need more, you just have to tell us so that we can help you more. We're on your team. <laughs> that's right. That's right. On your point of persistence, um, I would like to close with just a remembrance of um, one of our heroes in America, Shirley Chisholm. Shirley Chisholm, uh, for some of you may know, she is the first Black woman to have been elected to Congress, and she was the first Black woman to run for President of the United States. Mm -hmm. um, when she passed away back in 05, she said that she wanted her legacy to be one where she was remembered as a woman who dared to be a catalyst of change, mm -hmm. right? And I think that motto for her, that 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 drive, that North Star that she set for herself was how she was able to persist through racism, misogyny, what, what have you, all the challenges that she had to overcome to be in the position that she ended up in, where she did a lot of good for a lot of people, right? And mm. the my favorite quote from her, though, is this, and this is what I hope that our grad students and others We'll, we'll take from this. And that's this idea of, of 
you know, you, you should have a voice too, right? You should have a say in, in your studies. You should have a say in your research. You should have um, uh, a contribution, you know, because yours is just as good as other people's, right? Mm -hmm. And so what, what Shirley Chisholm said, and I remember this, um, uh, I mean, this is one of my favorites, is she said, if they don't give you a seat at the table, bring a folding chair. Folding chair, yes. Right, right. Okay. Mm -hmm. And I can guarantee you, Dr. Heron Watson, she's got a folding chair in her pocket. She <laughs> pops that sucker out anytime she needs to. And, and that's what we want. And that's what we want. Right. Um, and that's and, and I can't thank you enough, Dr. Heron Watson, for coming to speak to our listeners, because um, I really felt that you would be able to convey both as a recent PhD graduate. That was a couple of years ago, but still kind of kind of recent. So you had that experience, but also as um, a tenure track faculty, you know, and um, and a researcher um, and someone who exemplifies the folding chair mentality. Um, I really do. I, I was hoping that you could uh, um, help guide our our. our especially our grad students, but also our faculty, to um, addressing this issue of imposter phenomenon. Well, uh, you're very kind. Thanks, Dr. Mills. It's a pleasure to be here. I appreciate well, it. Thank you so much. And thank you, dear listeners, for tuning in.